I'm Scott. I'm Bill. And, and we're, we're the, the Trade, Trade Guys. Guys. You're listening to The Trade Guys, a podcast produced by CSIS where we talk about trade in terms that everyone can understand. I'm H. Andrew Schwartz, and I'm here with Scott Miller and Bill Reinch, the CSIS Trade Guys. In this episode, Bill and I speak with Ed Gresser, Ed is Vice President and Director of Trade and Global Markets at the Progressive Policy Institute. We talk with Ed about U.S. trade policy in the Trump and Biden administrations, as well as worker-centered trade and the views that voters have on globalization and how they've changed over the last few years. We'll hear Ed's ideas about the future of liberal trade policy. Stay tuned for that and more on today's episode of The Trade Guys. Well, welcome back to The Trade Guys. Bill and I are joined today by an old friend, Ed Gresser. Bill and I, as you know, are ancient history when it comes to trade policy, but uh, we our relationship with Ed goes back for quite a number of years. I think I met you first when you were on Senator Box's staff, but uh, he became semi-famous in policy circles as a speechwriter to U.S. Trade Representative Charlene Barshevsky during the Clinton administration. And uh, in and out of a number of, of assignments, in and out of government and the uh, think tank world, Ed has a unique way to communicate complicated ideas in a simple manner. So in many ways, he, he may be the godfather of the trade guys if, if we really got down to brass tacks. But Ed is back and he's writing his weekly trade facts. So Ed, welcome. And uh, what, what's on your mind? I've been in government for six years. I left, uh, started here on October 1st. So getting settled, what's, uh, what's on my mind is really, you know, what is, what's on people's mind? How can I sort of add a bit to the debate? What is the U.S. government hoping to achieve? You know, how can I support that as much as possible? How can I provide you know, friendly critiques when not? Those sorts of questions. I you know, started, as you mentioned, the Trade Fact of the Week. That's a weekly publication. will come out every Wednesday. We've done two editions so far. One being kind of a mission statement on the you know besieged liberalism need for um, revitalization new thinking but also the need to defend liberal project as something that's vital and successful and deserves defense then more recently last week a look at a bit of the trump legacy a lot of what uh, they did was based on the idea that us has a large trade deficit it's gone up that shows previous administrations that failed at this topic what does it look like now if you judge the trump people by that trade deficit metric what conclusions do you reach it got bigger as i recall <laughs> it got uh, su- substantially bigger and it got substantially more concentrated in manufacturing so what happened was sort of the opposite of what they were hoping would happen and you have to look at that and say well why was that was that something out of their control was it because of their policies, was it because of their trade policy specifically? And it kind of came down and you can very much attribute this to tax policy, trade policy, tariffs may be the reason it's more in manufacturing than it used to be, but the tax bill of 2017 is probably the main reason it's a lot bigger. So it was, I sort of chalked it down as a win for the economics profession, which had kind of said, this is what's gonna happen. If you have this policy mix, you will have a larger deficit in four years. And they were right. Welcome to Ed. Scott is right. You have a great gift for explaining things in terms that people can understand. And uh, simple is what we're all about here at the Trade Guys. So we're, uh, we're glad to have you. You are, are 
probably not unique, but unusual in that you survived Obama, survived Trump, and then survived part of Biden. Well, there are many civil servants that did that. When I went back into government in 2015 during the Obama administration, I kind of had a choice. Did I want to go in a political uh, position or sort of say, I want to do this for long term and um, work out a civil service job? And I did the latter, sort of expecting to stay for a long time. Uh, the job I had was Assistant U.S. Trade Representative for Trade Policy and Economics, which is a basically three-part job. One is you oversee USTR's economic research and um, use of trade data. A second is you administer or lead the administration of the generalized system of preferences. And the third is that you run the interagency policy coordination system, the Trade Policy Staff Committee and its uh, offshoots. So, yes, I stayed on for six years, but in a, it wasn't in a, a series of political appointments. It was a, a permanent civil service job. But basically, your job was to speak economics to political appointees, right? Yes, that was the, that was the major part of it. The policy coordination piece is actually very, very labor intensive. It takes a lot of time. USTR, U.S. Trade Representative Office, is the coordinating agency for trade policy and the lead in negotiations. But there are, depending on how you count, dozens of other agencies that have trade policy responsibilities and expertise. So the Department of Agriculture, Department of Homeland Security, Treasury Department, Environmental Protection Agency, and so on and so forth, Labor Department, Ag Department. And they all both need to know what is the policy line, what are we trying to achieve, and they have a right to say, we, uh, as Department of Commerce, are expert in the following things, and we think you're off base on this, and here's what we suggest you do instead. And so the, one of the jobs I had was to be the interface for that, the person who'd send out the outgoing papers and say, here's a proposal, and the person to take in the responses and say, you know, we have, you know, here are the agencies that think we're right, and that's all of them, which are in good shape, or, you know, here are the four agencies that think we're off base, and here are their complaints, and you have to work this out. So that... The economics and explanatory part of it is the, it was a major part of the job and it was the main reason I decided to take it. But the policy coordination piece is a very large bit of it as well. Well, on the economic side, speaking economics to politicians, did any of them pay any attention to you? Well, at certain points, yes. I mean, I think the Obama administration was very much um, interested in the views of, econ- of economists and Ambassador Froman, in particular, really had a, a liking for economics. And when, it, when he would travel to cities in the U.S., he would often sort of make a stop at one of the local universities or, you know, in you know, Texas or in Boston or you know, in Oklahoma and kind of see what was on the academic minds. I think the you know, Trump administration, uh, I would say, uh, you know, there were a few economists that they liked. Uh, one, they appointed to an unusual job in the White House. That was uh, Peter Navarro. But they didn't really have as much interest in the views of the economics profession. Biden is still quite new. And the major thing that's been going on is the infrastructure and uh, Build Back Better legislation. And, and that has had a lot of analysis as well. Well, given your last six years and your view of, of the administration, it's no secret that the trade guys came into existence because of President Trump's focus on trade and uh, the need for plain language. 
But if I were to characterize the Biden administration thus far for, you know, whatever their decisions are, it looks a lot like Trump light in terms of the actual practices. What do you think is we should expect in the future? Is that now the new center of trade policy or where are we going? I think it's early to tell. I mean, the administration has made a point several times of saying they wanted to wait on trade agreements until after the domestic investment piece is passed. Once that happens, I think I'll feel like I, I know more. But I would say I don't, I don't think Trump light is really is not the way I would describe it. The administration, I think, has come in with a couple of ideas. One is that it wants very much to focus on the manufacturing and investment and productive side of the U.S. economy. A second is that it probably does not want trade policy to be a source of division within its political coalition. And there's a lot of intra-party arguments under Clinton and under Obama. And I think they would like to have much more consensus and kind of view the USMCA agreement as successful in doing that. A third thing is that they feel very strongly that the United States needs to be a constructive and respected actor in the international scene, wants to be part of international organizations and negotiations and be seen as a leader and a a country that has a enlightened self-interest and common good view of the world and not a view of the world that says... U.S. is a victim, other countries are cheating us and tricking us and that sort of thing. And with respect to trade, I would say, first of all, it's it's a work in progress. There's a, a lot yet to learn. But they have been pretty good about kind of quietly defusing some of the landmines and set, you know, dampening some of the fires. You can see in the EU relationship, there's a settlement of the uh, Airbus Boeing dispute. There was a accord on uh, digital services taxes and kind of an end to the threat of ta- tariff retaliation over that. Most recently, they've had this arrangement on steel. Also, you know, one of the things that the Trump administration left was a threat of Section 301 tariffs on Vietnam over currency. And that was settled as well, mostly by the Treasury Department. So, I mean, I think there has been a, a lot of quiet work to lower the temperature, you know, diminish the chances of new explosions and try to um, stabilize and begin to shore up relationships with the with the allies. So I don't personally think Trump light is is quite the right description. Um, it's definitely true that, you know, with China, you know, we don't quite know what will come next. Um, there is probably a lot of sense that the Trump administration's approach didn't work, but also that they did identify some some significant and real problems in the relationship that need some sort of attention. I have to say, I think you're giving USTR a little more credit than they deserve. Uh, the DST and the currency, the Vietnam currency issue, basically were solved by Janet Yellen. They were not solved by Catherine Tai. And I mean, she it dealt with the aftermath, you know, the, the, the 301 issue, but it was basically Yellen who... who you know, worked uh, worked out the compromise. Okay, well, in, in fairness to myself, I, I think I, what I said was when Scott was talking about Trump light, I took that as Biden administration is like Trump light. And I was speaking in generally about the administration. Um, I, I think I did credit the Treasury for the Vietnam currency thing. 
Well, I think I think he meant Trump light, but you know, I give I give her credit on the steel and aluminum. Uh, on Boeing, you know, I, I, everybody says she solved the problem. They didn't solve the problem. They kicked the can for five years, and it's going to come back to bite us at some point. I mean, it was a good thing to do because it, it, it saved a lot of retaliation from kicking in, but it, it's not a solution in the sense of a, of a permanent solution. But enlighten us on a term that they've used a lot, which was used again this morning when, when Ambassador Tai spoke to uh, somebody on, on uh, digital trade. What does a trade policy for the workers mean? I would say that's probably a work in progress as well. You know, worker-centered trade policy, I assume, is a policy whose outcomes you'll judge by job quality. Um, are we adding jobs in um, high-wage industries? But it is, uh, you know, I think it's partly a, you know, as a, a political signal for Democrats, for labor sector, that this issue is meant to be, in the Biden administration, more of a unifying one and less of a, a, a point of conflict within the, the administration's political coalition. But I'd also say, you know, every administration will always, and I think sincerely, you know, will, will always say and sincerely believe that they are, their work in trade policy has a number of dimensions, but one of the very important and probably most important ones is how does this create opportunities for Americans to live better lives at work? Each administration will say that and will feel it, and you have to look at the results at the end and see whether, A, was this uh, well judged, or B, is trade policy really more something that affects you know, macro patterns uh, and consumer uh, well-being than it is um, something that you can really fine-tune to say we're going to create a certain amount of jobs and in particular industries. You know, a lot of your work over the years has been devoted to uh, workers and how to improve the lives of workers, not just in the United States, but in developing countries. I recall you, you know, you were visiting lecturer at, at my class at Maryland along with uh, the Sushwab and I taught, and we talked about development policy, as I, re as I recall, and, and you talked about tariffs. So... I think, you know, you know as much as anybody about how to improve the lives of workers globally, which I think is part of uh, the Biden administration's agenda. Can you give us two or three things that would really make a difference in that respect? How do we go about improving workers' lives through trade policy, both here and elsewhere? Because we have, we have all these uh, issues with AGOA looming and with developing countries, too. What should we be doing to... Uh, lift workers up. With respect to workers in poor countries, what we need to do is keep the entire working population in mind and think about which of them are the, the ones in greatest need. I'll give an example that I know a lot about and haven't studied it a bit. This is uh, Cambodia. Cambodia is one of the relatively few least developed countries that has been quite successful in exporting clothing and um, you know, light goods to the United States. And they have now probably 600,000 um, young women working in garment factories and in luggage and handbag factories and so forth around Phnom Penh. And they enter our lives and our consciousness when they begin doing that. You know, you can say, here's my shirt. This was made in a Cambodian factory. I can imagine to myself a long line of young women at sewing machines, um, each doing pieces of it, stitching it together, and so forth. They will have come from rural areas 
where there are essentially no opportunities for young women. Rural areas in Cambodia and similar countries are very, very poor. Most of the work will be for boys and young men. Um, that would be the person who in inherits the farm. That would be the person who gets a job in the army or in transport and so forth. And so they would come in to find jobs in the city. Uh, they would have networks of other people from their villages and would be you know, recruited to work in these you know, quite large um, clothing factories. The World Bank people who I spoke to at the time analyzed it as follows. They said that rural Cambodian family typically has six months of food security. With one daughter in one of these factories, you have um, now two years of food security. The, uh, the worker will be saving about a third of her money for herself, sending about a third of it home and using about a third of it to pay living expenses. Two daughters, you have enough money to be buying irrigation equipment and tractor and raising uh, crops to sell. So there's a big dimension of people moving into that sort of job has a very large poverty alleviation effect and also is uh, a way for people to move out of the other things that are open or around Phnom Penh, which is basically rag picking or working in bars and massage parlors and stuff. So you have to keep in mind when thinking of trade policy that the population that comes to mind are the factory workers. And within a poor country, those are kind of a middle class or a lower middle class group. And they're quite successful. They're pleased with their jobs most of the time. You can, uh, I think, do a, a lot to make sure the factories are safe, the factories are living up to um, you know, standards we'd like to see in um, production work. But if we think of labor issues as, you know, those factories are jobs that unpleasant, wouldn't want my kids to take, they must be exploited, and begin thinking more about restrictions and cutting them off, then you're probably doing a lot of harm that you're not seeing because the harm will show up in the lives of people who no longer work in an internationally active business and the lives of families who no longer have these remittances and so forth. So I think U.S. trade policy in terms of low-income countries has by and large been fairly successful. Uh, to the extent we can, you know, U.S. is, I believe, like 13% of imports or something. We are doing something through FTAs and trade preferences to encourage sourcing from poor countries that succeeds in some places. It's hard to do in others, but we are kind of doing the best we can. You know, Ed, globalization's taken a pretty bad beating in public esteem over the last several years for a lot of reasons. But uh, you're making a point that I think is worth remembering is that the combination of technological change and and market openness that we call globalization is one of the great success stories of this century. It is, uh, when you look at the millennium goals set by the United Nations in terms of poverty reduction, that the one goal that was really most influenced by freer trade and application of, of technology to production networks it exceeded its goal way ahead of schedule. I mean, the, the dramatic reduction of poverty is something we've never seen before. We don't talk about that much, and we don't reflect it in, in, in arguments for greater market access, both for U.S. exporters and U.S. firms and, and workers, or for those who will benefit from being lifted out of poverty. How do we make that argument in the future, given what we've been through? It is not easy to have people in one country think about successes in other countries as 
something of value to them. They may approve of it, but it, it's hard to get people really to care a lot about it. But it is, as you say, this is one of the major phenomena of the 21st century. And when I did my first trade fact, this is something I was highlighting, that I looked at uh, some data from the International Labor Organization about people working for very, very low, little, little money. That's uh, the count of people around the world making $1.90 per day or less uh, in constant dollars and so forth. And what they found was that in the year 2000, there was about 720 million people working at this rate. So those are people who are making essentially enough money to feed themselves day to day and maybe feed one other person and never to save any money, never to do any better than that. By 2019, that had fallen to about, um, I'm, trying, I'm looking at the total here, it was now down to 720 minus, uh, to about 280 million. So it fell by about two thirds, the number of really, really poor workers. And the rest had moved, basically moved into what we consider the middle class. Yes. And so that is a, you know, extraordinary story of life changing for the better for hundreds of millions of people um, all around the world. Area is one, you, know, you have, you, you can't ever sound, especially if you're in the political world, that you care a lot more about poor people in some other country than you care about the, you know, the average person here. Uh, you know, you're elected to take care of the country, you are accountable for that, and you shouldn't be caring more about other countries than about your own. And if you, if you look that way, then you will definitely not succeed. But you can very much make a case that, in a variety of ways, that the, the good of the world is also the good of the United States. That if people are escaping poverty in other countries, they will be better buyers of American goods. They will buy American foods. They will, buy, they will see American entertainment. They will buy American you know, cars and tech products and all sorts, and sorts of stuff. Um, to the extent the world is growing a little bit more interdependent, that they're dependent on our goods and our uh, ideas and we're buying some of theirs, there's some chance of diminished conflict. There's limits to this argument and sometimes people go over that limit a bit, but it's always good when you're dealing, especially with big power relationships, if countries are aware that if things go wrong, there'll be a, a lot of costs to pay in a lot of areas. So there's, I think, some national security benefit and benefit for the safety of Americans um, in the armed services and you know, at, at home in the fact that other countries might be doing well. When you look back at some of the major liberal successful presidents, like, you know, Franklin Roosevelt and Truman and Clinton and Obama, they were able to do this. They were able to say, it's not necessary that someone else loses that we win. And I think that's an important point that presidents generally should be making to the public. You know, the converse of that is, you know, if others lose, then we're, it's significantly possible that we'll be losing in some way because of that, either in our own economic horizons or in um, security and safety of the country. I guess the um, policy dilemma is whether helping workers is, is um, zero sum or whether it can be win-win. I mean, the, the question that comes up on, in trade policy, it seems to me, is that the way to help uh, Cambodian apparel workers, like the ones you mentioned, is to uh, take more of their apparel here.
that would mean lower tariffs and that would mean, you know, encouraging more uh, more imports from Cambodia that runs up against domestic textile industry interests and domestic apparel interests to the extent there are a lot of them left. So we end up kind of in a, I mean, don't, do we end up in a situation where we kind of have to say we're going to help American workers or we're going to help foreign workers, but we can't help both at the same time? Or is there a win-win outcome here? Well, I think this is, for all of us in the think tank world, this is a, a really significant challenge in that for quite a long time, from the end of the Second World War, really up through the last decade or so, I think there was this sort of confidence that the economy will change. It will change under the impact of technology and uh, internet and they used to call automation, that there are some industries that will come up and others that will fade. On balance, people will do better because of that and that U.S. government uh, should have some active policies to you know, promote worker training and adjustment. And I think that was pretty well borne out for a long time. The faith that people would put in tariffs and trade protections was never very credible. When, like the you know, Cambodian case is actually one where you know, we have quite high tariffs uh, on clothes. We've had them for 200 years. They haven't been very successful in protecting jobs. And so by saying you know, we'll continue to have a 32% tariff on a polyester shirt made in Cambodia, that's what we have, and it hasn't really protected anything. Uh, over time, as economies become more specialized, as container shipping becomes a bigger industry, the protecting factor of tariffs is not strong. You know, likewise, when you look at the steel industry, you know, there's been at least you know, five major bouts of, or maybe four, of uh, 232 tariffs and two. 201 tariffs and voluntary restraint agreements and minimum import prices, they haven't really worked. And so those are, those are policies that can provide temporary relief and temporary help for businesses or industries or workers that are adjusting, but they're not long-term solutions. What has really hit hard over the last decade is that that sense that the economy will adjust and people will uh, move on to new things has been called into question. There's very good research uh, by um, Angus Deaton and uh, Case that said, and then work by uh, Autor and Hansen, that at least with respect to the very, very sudden and dramatic emergence of China as the world's major exporter of manufactured goods, there was a, a dent that was hard to adjust to, that workers, especially older you know, manufacturing workers or people in communities that were dominated by one or two big factories uh, really had a very difficult time. And that is, I think, a, you know, a challenge to all of us who had you know, been enthusiastic about open market policies. You know, was that a one-time thing? Are there ways it could have been avoided that we should look at? Are there better ways to help people adjust to change? Because you know, change definitely is going to be inevitable. You know, if you think about the effect, you know, to take it out of trade, you know, the development of the digital economy, you know, I think most people would say has been really, really positive. It's been good for people in daily lives. It gives you better um, consumer opportunities, better entertainment, you know, eases, you know, a lot of routine tasks. 
On the other hand, uh, it's cut newspaper employment by three quarters. It's cut uh, banking employment. You know, things that you know, these things are going to happen, and sometimes they'll be internationally uh, caused, and sometimes they'll be domestically caused, and sometimes they'll be technology caused. And I think the big challenge for people in the policy world and for the administration is how can we do better? How can we avoid you know, really sharp and irreparable shocks to people's lives? Not how can you prevent those shocks from happening, but how can you respond to them effectively in ways that didn't happen in the, in the 2010s and 2000s? I think that's an important issue, Ed. And, and look, we all know in a, dy a dynamic economy, there, dyna dynamism has a lot of effects. So jobs are created and destroyed. Occupations change drastically. They're, you know, we still have farmers in America, but what a farmer does today versus 50 years ago is dramatically different. So there's dramatically fewer farmers today than there were 50 or 100 years ago. Well, we produce a lot more food. Exactly, because the change in the occupation has made them much more productive. But somewhere in there, I think we rediscover our confidence in, in the future and our confidence as Americans. Ed, welcome back to the Think Tank world. Uh, and we're, we're glad to have you. It's always great to hear your insights. Where can people find your work and what are you working on most immediately, like your next trade fact? Well, uh, you can find our work at www.ppionline.org. You can uh, send me a note at egressor at ppionline.org and I will respond right away. I think the core issues that I would like to be working on are, one, this question of how do you help the U.S. recover some confidence in a global economy? What is the mix of policies at home that will help build that confidence? When you look back at the last four years, are the problems that you know, people in the Trump administration would have pointed to in 2017, are any of them fixed or are they actually uh, quite you know, still there and uh, in some cases you know, bigger than they used to be? Uh, if we can't rely on a you know, view of America as the victim and a uh, kind of shaking our fist at foreigners, which I don't think we can. I don't think the record shows those pro pro that approach worked. What can we draw from earlier history that might be good guides now? What can we learn about adjustment and you know, ways to give confidence, especially to people who are a little bit on in their career and uh, you know, less educated. You know, the core problem, I think, for the country in a lot of areas is how do you give that group of Americans a sense of hope and a sense of respect? I think otherwise, uh, from week to week, I'll be looking at particular individual topics. Um, probably next week or maybe the week after, I'd like to do something on Africa. Africa is, it seems to me, the, the part of the world that is most right now enthusiastically embracing liberalization and integration. What has, uh, what has given you know, the Af community of African governments that degree of optimism and uh, commitment? What are the ways we can um, more, uh, more closely be involved with African development and you know, tap some of their growth for exports that we don't now have? And ultimately try to say that the, you know, the liberal values that really animated in various ways, all of the administrations through the Obama administration are, they're, they're good values. They're the right ones. Um, the policies probably need to be updated to take into account 
you know, new technologies, you know, experiences positive and negative for the last couple of decades, but remain good uh, guides to strategy and policy and the role of the United States in the world. So that's, that's really the purpose of this project and uh, what I would like to be working on and hope very much to be working closely with you guys at CSIS. Well, when you get all the answers to those questions, we'll have you back. <laughs> Thanks so much for joining us, Ed. So that is that saying you'll never be back on this uh, podcast again? <laughs> <laughs> We're saying it depends on you. Okay. That's right. We're sure glad to have you today. If you have a question for the Trade Guys, write us at tradeguys at csis.org. That's tradeguys at csis.org. We'll read some of your emails and have the Trade Guys react to it. You've been listening to The Trade Guys, a CSIS podcast.